as enjoyable and profitable for you as it has been for me. It's always a good experience for me to uh, come and do this kind of thing in the local church. Well, um, we've done a number of things all related to God as maker of heaven and earth. And this morning in the Sunday school hour, we're going to do something that is Bible related, but it's not kind of, although we are going to be looking at some particular Bible passages. What I want to address this morning is the interface between theology and science. We've been kind of going around this issue a little bit by looking at imagery, and I've been showing you places where we ought not to be trying to read Scripture as if it's scientific language. We need to see this language through ancient eyes and understand the ancient imagery as ancient Israelites would have and not as modern people with our modern view of the world. So we're going to look this morning, we could do a few other things, but for time's sake, we're going to look at two models, two science and theology interface with each other. Now the first one we're going to look at is by far the dominant one. Let's say that you go to a, a conference And the conference is being led by somebody who believes that the, um, that, and that Genesis, the days in Genesis are six 24-hour periods and God created in six 24-hour periods. That, that instructor is going to have a certain model of how the theology and science relate to each other. Now let's say you go to a different conference, and it's led by, a, by someone who, and uh, the days in Genesis ought not to be understood as six 24-hour periods, but six really, really long eras. Now these seem to be two pretty different people, right? The fact of the matter is, is we're going to see They have the exact same model. That's the one that we're going to look at. Then we're going to look at an alternative model, which I think is the one that does justice to the evidence of, that we find in the Bible. The first I'm going to call the harmony model because their, their goal is to harmonize what they find in science and what they find in the Bible. They want to harmonize because they're not trying to harmonize it. They're looking at how theology and science complement each other. And we'll look at what the difference is as we go. But first, we need to, to clear away an oversimplification that abounds in these kinds of discussions. And that oversimplification comes with uh, the phrase, Science and the Bible, scores of books that have something like that in their title. Countless church conferences have had that as their topic, science and the Bible. And that is an oversimplification, which we need to get rid of at the very beginning. What do I mean by that? 
science that way. And notice that's how I'm not framing it. I'm framing it theology and science, not science in the Bible. Because if we say science in the Bible, that's leaving out a key human activity in this entire enterprise. And that activity is interpretation. If we say science and the Bible, that all we need is the Bible. But as a matter of fact, we always have to have the Bible and our interpretation. There's no getting around that. I remember when I was a relatively young Christian in uh, college, I was converted just coming out of high school. And, I, and somebody would say to me, well, that's just your interpretation. And I would say, no, it's not. That's what the Bible says. Well, trust me, you cannot get past Genesis 1-1 reading only Reformed and Presbyterian commentators and not find disagreements. Sometimes people say to me, Things like, well, I really like the ESV as a, as, a, as a Bible translation because it doesn't interpret. Now, any of you who would happen to be bilingual, you know that you cannot possibly go from one language to another without first asking the question, what's meant in the original language? That's interpretation. And so between science and the Bible, because that's presuming that the Bible doesn't need interpretation and it does. And also, the Grand Canyon. I'll use the Grand Canyon as a metaphor for the object uh, of study by the scientist. The Grand Canyon needs interpretation. How many of you remember the old TV show Dragnet? Yes, most of you do. Okay. Just the facts. Yeah. Impossible. There's no such thing as just the facts. The facts always come with interpretation. They always have to be interpreted. That's why there's a disagreement on all sorts of different things. There's the data. You do this all the time in a very common way just when you're having a conversation with somebody. We talked a little bit about this over the weekend. Somebody says something to you. And, and, and it, it kind of makes you mad. Or it hurts your feelings. They didn't intend that at all. Because of things going on in your own mind and in your own heart, you, you read that a certain way, incorrectly maybe. See, you, you, what they say and your interpretation can't ever get away from that. So we don't have two things that we're dealing with, science and the Bible. We have four things that we're dealing with. See, it's a little too simple. The Word of God, yes? And we have the world of God. And we have theology. And we have science. My simple approach this morning is that theology is in the business of interpreting the Word.
and science the world. Now, do all scientists agree when they look at certain data? No, they don't. Do all theologians agree when they look at certain data, like Bible verses? No. So should we be surprised that there are times when scientists and theologians don't agree? Friday night we started off with maker of heaven and earth from the Apostles' Creed to lay that foundation of where we agree because there are going to be disagreements. So before this fellow named Copernicus, let's just give him a rough date of 1500, and this other fellow named Galileo, 50, before those two guys, from where we sit, we would say all the scientists before Galileo and Copernicus were what? Starts with a W. They were wrong. They were wrong in how they were interpreting the data. Because they were interpreting the data as if the universe and the sun is going around the earth, and their interpretation was influenced by Aristotelian philosophy. Oh, our interpretation is always influenced by something. There is no pure objectivity. We all come with certain presuppositions to any data that we look at and are determining what we conclude. Just look at our political scene. Yeah. Funny how Democrats always see something that happens and they come to a certain anti-Trump conclusion. Republicans look at that exact same data and they come to a pro-Trump conclusion. It's one's presuppositions that help us shape our conclusions. So the, uh, the old dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, sorry, she can't give you just the facts. She can only give you the facts as she saw them, which is why sometimes a police officer might interview three or four people who were eyewitnesses. Do they always say they're coming at it from their perspective? And so the data, the Grand Canyon, it's there but the scientist has to interpret that data. Genesis 1.1, it's there, but the theologian has to interpret it. And so we, just, we need to be humble uh, as we approach this topic because there's so much disagreement. ...that took place called the Copernican Revolution. And wow, it really did turn the world of science and theology upside down. We don't want to be arrogant and think that now, now we have the assured results of science. We have the assured results of theology. We've got it right. It's not possible for... We look back at the pre-Copernican theologians and scientists and we say, wow, what were those guys smoking? That's what they thought? Is it possible in your mind that a thousand years from now, people might look back at what we currently think scientifically and theologically about the Bible and might not say, wow, what were those guys smoking? That's what they really thought? 
Yeah, see, human beings journey. Uh, we're on a journey growing in our knowledge of the world, growing in our knowledge of the Word, but we're not at the end yet. And, you know, sometimes when you're taking a trip that's that you're not in control of, it takes some twists and some turns and leads you to some very interesting places. So humility and openness in this endeavor. Well, let's uh, jump in and let's look at the harmony model. I say in the Christian church, this is the dominant model. doesn't matter whether the speaker is young earth and six 24-hour days or old earth and billions of uh, Uh, billions of years in each one of those days, these two people hold the same thing. Underneath. Oh, those guys really disagree. But underneath, they're kissing cousins because they have the same model. Here's how I articulate this model, the harmony model. The theologian and the scientist are saying the same thing about the same thing. In other words, if we rightly interpret Genesis 1, they're going to harmonize with each other and tell us the same thing. Who holds this view? Well, as I've already mentioned, I'm going to call the the one group, young earth and six 24-hour days, I'm going to call those folks the er, the ordinary day view. Because they look at Genesis 1 as teaching day view. That's their operating model. And their goal is to show us how science tells us the exact same thing that Genesis 1 tells us. Namely, creation is very young and it happened in six 24-hour periods. Now, the ordinary day view, that is a bit strange, right? Because the first three days are hardly ordinary. Why are they not orders evening, but there's no sun and no moon and no stars? So how there was uh, an, an, an oscillation of light and darkness without the sun and the moon and the stars, which aren't created until the fourth day, that's a little bit hard to call those first three days ordinary. Uh, but we're going to just use that label, ordinary day folk. The other folk that use this same model are the, the long days view. That the days in Genesis 1 aren't six 24-hour periods. They're billions of years. Uh, the universe is like 15 billion years old. The earth is 4 billion years old. Um, those folks have this same model. If I only rightly interpret the Grand Canyon and I rightly interpret the Scripture about the same thing, and what they're saying is, the earth is really, really old, and the days in Genesis 1 are really, really long. Now, isn't it interesting? These two groups seem on the surface to be really different, right? Because one says, young earth, old earth. One says, six tw- no, Genesis 1 is talking about the word day there means long epoch. So, on the surface, they look like they're radically opposed to each other because they disagree on their science, on their interpretation of the world, young old. They disagree on their interpretation of the word, 
six 24-hour periods, long periods of time. So they're identical. And how are they identical? They're identical with the presupposition that if I rightly interpret the Word, and if I rightly interpret the world, they're going to be saying the same thing. Harmony. Harmonizing science and theology. Now, as an example, day one, when God said, let there be light, and day four, when God said, let there be a sun, a moon, and a stars, a set of stars, how would they handle this in general? Well, the ordinary day folk would say, on day one, God created light, and on day four, God created light. How can you have light when there's no sun, moon, or stars where we get the lights from? Well, they might appeal to science, to physics, uh, and to have some deep physics explanation of how it's possible to have light even without the sun and the moon and the stars. I find it kind of ironic because this is not my position, by the way, but I get criticized by these kind of folk because, oh, you're being influenced by science. Those of you who have been here this weekend, have I ever tried to defend anything that I have said based on science? No, because I'm studying the Bible. Um, but at any rate, th- there's somewhat of a problem, and it's an age-old problem. How do you have days but no luminaries? But they might come up with some kind of scientific explanation. And why a scientific explanation? Because science and the Bible have to harmonize. They have to be saying the same thing about the same thing. Now, these folks over here, how might they handle this? Well, on, the day, on day one, problem gone. How do you have light without luminaries? On day one, God created the light and the lights. Well, what about day four? Because on day four, it seems like God's creating the luminaries. No, they'll say. That's because you have a wrong interpretation. You see, what happens scientifically, the sun and the moon and the stars were all out there, but our atmosphere was real thick. Now, on a real cloudy day, is it lighter than at night? Yeah, but on a real cloudy day, can you see the sun? No. So at the beginning, real thick atmosphere, kind of like a real cloudy day, creates the light and the lights, but on day four, what happens by day four is God takes away that real thick, dense atmosphere, so now the lights the sun and the moon and the stars, which have always been there, now they appear and you can see them. So we have two different interpretations of the science and we have two different interpretations of the Bible. I know I said, I, I know I said we're supposed to be humble in all of this. But I've, I've thought about these things for eons, eons. Going back to my dissertation in the... Uh, in the in the early 80s and even before that, none of this makes 
good sense to me. But just to review the harmony model. Saying the same thing, if I rightly interpret the data in the world, and I rightly interpret the data in the world, in the word, I'm going to get a harmonized view. It's all going to tell me the same thing. Okay, let's go to a different model. And uh, this one is the complementary model. Now here, the, the theologian and about the same thing. Harmony, saying the same thing, about the same thing. Interpretation of the Grand Canyon and the Bible. It's all going to harmonize and give us the exact same picture. Complementary. Theologian and the scientist are saying different things about the same reality. I ask you a question, what is this? And your answer is a bottle. And I say, oh, no, no, no. This is not a bottle. This is plastic. Now, which one of us is right? Are we saying the same? But are we saying the same thing about the same thing? No, that's the complementary model. If you say it's a bottle, what question are you answering? Function. What's it used for? If I say it's plastic, what question am I answering? What's it made out of? We're both speaking the truth about questions. And when you say it's a bottle and I say it's plastic, what we're saying doesn't harmonize, but these two things complement each other. Uh, Now, don't ask me to match colors. I can't tell you. I would need that wheel, you know, that you can find somewhere that shows you the opposite sides and what. Now, I think this goes. But you know why this goes? While back, I asked my wife if this goes. I I kid you not. We've been married uh, uh, 42 and a half years. And if I have a new shirt and some new ties, I wouldn't dare to put them together and walk out the door. Without saying, Adele, does this go? I don't know. One day I was, uh, I was at a conference like this uh, down in, towards South Florida, and I went into a men's clothier, and they had a tilby. Uh, a tilby is a certain kind of men's hat. Um, and so I'm trying it on. And as I'm trying it on, this was like before video chatting. I, I'm trying it on, and I'm taking a picture. And the guy comes up to me and he says, but I, it was, I don't know, it was maybe like a, an $80 hat, a $100 hat. It was, it's, a, it's a Stetson. It's a really good uh, dress hat. I said, you think I'm going to spend that kind of money and come home? And my wife said, what were you thinking? So at any rate, yeah, I, that's, I guess that's part of the reason why we've been married this long. Because I learned very early what I don't know and uh, where her areas of expertise are are talking about the same thing, but they're answering different questions. And to put it real simply, I think God has given us theology to answer questions like who and why. 
Science can't tell us who did it. Science can't tell us why we're here. But I don't believe the Bible can answer questions like when and how. Those are scientific questions. Now, we want the scientist and the theologian to work together so that we have a very rich worldview that incorporates knowledge of all of God's world. That's why Calvin does two things. One, as I mentioned this weekend, he celebrates to us that if we want to learn astronomy or other recondite arts, meaning sciences, don't go to the Bible for that. That's not what the Holy Spirit intends to give us in the Bible. The Holy Spirit intends to teach us, as we'll see, in short, how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So, uh, I do. Others do. I didn't invent it. But I'm admitting to you up front that we're a minority. I do think a lot of the heat in the discussion of creation, science, theology, a lot of the heat would go down if people weren't using the harmony view. I think as we are going to have ongoing major disagreement in the church on how to read the Bible and how to read the Grand Canyon. Uh, and there are a lot, uh, let's, just, let's just narrow down to the PCA. There are a lot of good people in the PCA who don't see eye to eye on this, on either question, either the science side or the number of years ago the PCA studied the question of the, um, the age of the earth, for example, and the conclusion of the study was we're going to wait until more data comes in. So for now, we're just going to treat each other respectfully. We're not going to make one position, old earth, young earth, uh, a requirement to be an ordained minister. There were a group of about a half a dozen PCA elders who are also professional geologists, and they wrote uh, a, um, a minority report, and the minority report basically said the data's in. It's been in for a long time. The earth is very old. Uh, so where are we as a denomination in the PCA? We're kind of Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, back in the early 80s. We tolerate various views. And that's where we should remain. Uh, I think it's unfortunate. By the way, there are, there, are some, there are some presbyteries in the PCA that if I wanted to go and pastor a church in that presbytery, in my denomination, they wouldn't let me hold their view of how to interpret Genesis 1. We're in the same denomination. And I wouldn't be welcome to be a pastor in one of those presbyteries Uh, local churches. I I find that unfortunate because one thing that we confess in the Apostles' Creed near the end is we believe in the Holy Spirit and the communion of the saints. Saints, where we're making this issue a litmus test for whether one is acceptable or not. We need to be more open-minded. And as we said on Friday night, even when we disagree with each other, 
And even when we think it's really important that we disagree with each other, we can still worship together on Sunday morning and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Be the ground that goes underneath all of our areas of disagreement. Well, what's a little bit of biblical evidence that the complementary model works and in my estimation is a better model than the harmony model. Let's first of all think about Genesis, the uh, one, the fourth day, when the Bible says God created, translate it woodenly, God created the two big lights, the big one to rule the day and the little one to rule the night. That's what the text says, the two big lights. Let's just ask ourselves a couple of interpretive questions. First of all, are the sun and the moon the two big lights in the sky like the Bible says? Yes. If you use a telescope and look out into the universe, our sun is not the biggest star out there, as we said the other night. It's a medium-sized star. There are stars that are a lot, lot, lot bigger. There are stars that are smaller. Um, they appear to be. But if we were to ask a scientist, any scientist, old Earth, are the sun and the moon the two biggest lights up in the sky, scientifically speaking? They would all say what? Starts with an N. They all say no. So well, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that the Bible has an error in it? No, because remember the words of John Calvin. The Holy Spirit is not intending to teach us an astronomy lesson here. Here, to us as ordinary non-scientific observers, it sure looks like the sun is the biggest and the moon is the second biggest. Just not scientifically is that the case. See, so we don't want to try to match the language of the Bible, the two big lights, with our scientific understanding, and it doesn't matter if you're old earth or young earth. Any science tell you, whatever they think about the age of the earth, that the, that the sun's a mediocre light and that the moon is really, really small compared to other lights, uh, not scientifically the two big lights. Uh, science, uh, Calvin certainly knew this from the science of his day. Uh, remember, I mentioned the other night that Copernicus is born before the European continent at the same time, and then Calvin dies, and in the year that Calvin dies, Galileo is born. So Calvin and Galileo could not have ever crossed paths. It's interesting to, to ask, did Calvin and Copernicus ever dialogue about the world and the Word? Or at least was... Calvin aware, and is maybe that revolutionary teaching of Copernicus the primary reason why Calvin said in regard to Genesis 1, if you want to learn astronomy and other recondite sciences, go elsewhere. You're not going to find that in the Bible. I don't know. It's an interesting question. So, the two big lights, are they really the two big, what we call a phenomenological perspective, that is the way they appear to us? Yes, they are the two big lights. Practically speaking, in our world, how the 
lights, all the lights up there affect us. The sun is the big one and the moon is the second big one. So the Bible is right. It's just not speaking scientifically. So we shouldn't try to, we shouldn't try to come up with a theory whereby we can explain how, as a matter of fact, we know that the sun is the biggest star in the entire universe. And the moon is the second biggest one. How do we know that? Because the Bible says so. And we're going to find science to match up with the Bible. I think that's just a wrong-headed approach. But you see, if you're committed to the harmony model, that's what you have to do in one way or another. You have to make the two harmony. God says, uh, I'm going to make the two big lights, the big one to rule the day and the small one to rule the night. Well, let's ask this question. Is the moon a light? No. If you leave, lose your keys at 1 o'clock in the morning, would you rather lose them full moon or no moon? The moon is not a light. Scientifically, it's not a light. There, the sun is like a, a, a fusion reactor. And part of that fusion process is the emission of photons. Yeah, there's no fusion going on on the moon. It's like dead. Um, now, if you're a moon scientist, you're probably going to correct me on that. There's probably rock. Safe to say, no fusion going on on the moon. No photons being admitted, being emitted. But what does the Bible say? The Bible calls the big one a light <clears throat> and the little one a light as if there's no what between them. As if there's no difference. Again, no scientist would say there's no difference between the sun and the moon. Imagine this again. We can imagine somebody saying, well, the, the Bible says they're both lights. So there are. And so we've done our scientific research. As a matter of fact, you know what we've discovered? We've discovered that the moon emits photons. I know that mainline science doesn't acknowledge that, but we know that it's the case. And how do we, that's our interpretation of the data of the moon. Our presuppositional commitment to harmonizing the two. And since the Bible says two lights, the moon must be a light. And so there's a science that is generated to demonstrate that. Uh, so again, the two big lights, they are both big lights from our experience, right? We would rather look for our keys Oh, it's going to be more light out there, but that's not because the moon is a light. It's because it's a mirror, right? It's just reflecting the light. That is, they're not the same thing from a scientific perspective. So we shouldn't try to harmonize the data in the universe with the data in the Bible. We should see how they complement each other. They're both saying different things. Now, one other question. The Bible says that God made the two big lights, the big light to rule the day and the little light to rule the night, and also the stars. Now, that's interesting to think about, and also the stars. First of all, by saying God created the light, created stars, what's that saying about the relationship between the sun and the stars? They're, they're what? 
They're different. We got the sun, the big light. Oh, by the way, also the stars, sun. But, but from a scientific point of view, what is the relationship between the sun and the stars? You know the same? The, the Bible, once again, is not speaking the language of science when it differentiates the sun and the stars. But practically speaking, which is more important to you in your day-to-day living? The sun or the stars? Which plays a bigger role? We were talking about the fact that um, <clears throat> I wear hats all the time. And uh, now in the summer, I brimmed hats. I've probably had 90 skin cancer surgeries in my life. My One of my most recent ones was a one on my ear that required a skin graft and a lot of tedious care to get that skin graft to hold and yeah, so now I wear wide-brimmed hats. Right? The sun plays a very important role so that I never go out in the summer or protect me other than a hat. And, uh, oh, what a beautiful sunny day. Oh, man, it's been dreary for so long. That's very common in our human experience, right? But we don't have that same relationship with the stars, And so there is a practical difference in our lives between the sun and the stars, and the Bible's aware of that. And so it differentiates the sun from the stars. But that's since the Bible differentiates the sun and the stars, we shouldn't try to come up with a scientific explanation as to how the sun is different than the stars to make sure that the two things harmonize. It's just wrong-headed. There's another question here also when it says, and also the stars. So think about a night sky. We got the uh, uh, the moon and the stars. Okay, Genesis 1 and also the stars. But in Genesis' picture, <clears throat> what's missing? What else can we see in the night sky that is not a star? Planets, yeah. It doesn't say the big one to rule the day, the little one to rule the night, and also the other stars and planets. I've looked in the Bible. There's a close one. In Jude chapter 13, it talks about wicked people being wandering stars. See, the ancients knew that the planets were somehow different than the stars. And how are they different? with each other. They move independently. It looks like they do what that starts with a W. It looks like they wander around up there. So the ancients were aware that there are twinklers up there that are somehow a little bit different, but what did they call them? Wandering stars. They didn't really differentiate them from the other stars. Can you see that one there? That's not a star. That's Venus. That's not a star. That's Mars. That's not a star. That's Jupiter. Most of us can't. Uh, One way to do that is just to remember the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. If it's not twinkling, what? It's a planet. And uh, because like the moon, the, the planets tend to be a little bit bigger and a little bit brighter. So just start to practice 
And uh, if you can't do that, just get, just get the app on your phone, uh, Google Sky. And uh, Google Sky will help you to see where the stars are and where the planets are. Okay, so let's bring this to a conclusion. I'm just a couple minutes behind. One, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, to be a member of this church, you don't have to agree with everything that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger and Shorter Catechism. But to be a minister or an elder, you do. There's a little bit of fudge room on certain things, like how do you interpret Genesis 1? Oh, that's not the way we do, but there's fudge room. You can still be an elder. You can still be your catechism, larger, shorter catechism, confession of faith. There are agreed upon set of doctrinal standards. At Reformed Theological Seminary, there's variety in the faculty on a bunch of issues, but we all, we all subscribe every year. We don't have, there's no tenure. We're on annual contracts. And every year you have to send in, a, have to say, I subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism. The board is uh, focused on keeping the faculty in line, on board, theological. We have that same common foundation. And since we have that foundation, guess what? We, we're free to disagree with each other on a lot of stuff. And still be friends. Common foundation. And even in a more foundational way, should the Apostles' Creed serve uh, in the church. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The answer? The Scriptures principally teach what we are to believe about God and what duties God requires of us. That is a nice north star for hydrology it teaches us what we're to believe about God, like he is the maker of heaven and earth, and what duties he requires of us, how we're to live humbly uh, and peaceably before God and before others. John Calvin, which I've mentioned a number of times, the Holy Spirit does not intend to teach us astronomy. Bill Galilei, born the year Calvin died. Galileo said, and I think this captures everything that I've tried to say today. The Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Nobody in the Harmony Camp likes that quotation. They said, and how the heavens go. The problem is they have radically different sciences and radically different interpretations of the Bible. If we follow Galileo and Calvin, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. We end up in a situation where the scientist is not telling me. The scientist is not telling me what I can and cannot find in the Bible. On the other hand, I'm not telling the scientist what she can find when she looks through her telescope or her, or her microscope. These are autonomous spheres. Uh, this goes back, and I won't, don't have time to go into detail, but this goes back to philosophy that comes from Abraham Kuyper, who was a prime minister 
of the Netherlands where the church, the house, the school, the civil realm, uh, all of these have a relative autonomy. They operate independently. The church doesn't tell you how to vote. The government doesn't tell you where you have autonomy, but they're not isolated silos in a farm. Everybody, because we're Christians, should amicably talk to each other, pull all of our perspectives together so that together we have a rich and robust view of the world that has come to us as a gift from the Maker of heaven. Thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, we are sorry that um, because of our finitude and because of our sin, we don't always properly interpret your word, and we don't always properly interpret your word. We pray for your patience with us, and as we want you to be patient with us, we pray that you would grant us patience with others, uh, in particular, uh, that together we might go forward in a world of darkness, confessing the light of the gospel that comes to us from you, maker of heaven and earth. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son, and our Savior, who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, sorry. I